And welcome to the Basic Biology Podcast. With me, James Conway. And me, Charlie Blake. Episode three, we're back. Let's get this show on the road. You'll have to excuse us for our nasally tones this week. We're both suffering from, from the hay fever. The pollen is up, so are our eosinophils. So we're going to start with a lovely bit about epigenetics. What's epigenetics? I hear you say. What's epigenetics? So, I'll tell you, Charlie. You may have heard of genetics, which is the study of our, our DNA, our genome, um, which codes for our, all of our proteins. Our genes. Everything we've got going on. I'm not talking about Levi's. No, we're not. So today we're going to uh, talk about epigenetics. Now, epigenetics is uh, to do with gene expression, not necessarily to do with the actual the code itself, but to do with which bits of that code are expressed or not expressed. Now, we saw a an article in... Uh, Focus magazine this week, BBC Focus, classic science magazine. The headline is, growing up poor can affect your DNA as well as your health. Now, DNA and health are often inexplicably linked, as we uh, talked about last week when we spoke about cancer. What they found in this study is that we've known for a while that those of a lower socioeconomic status, who don't have as much money, will suffer from worse health throughout their lives. They're not as likely to live as long as somebody who's from a higher socioeconomic background. And until quite recently, really, it's, it's been a bit of a mystery how that happens until we've applied epigenetics to the study. There are, there are some, we've had some ideas. I mean, I think you notice that people that have a healthier childhood um, often end up uh, doing better academically, uh, sometimes grow taller, uh, sometimes better at sport because they've had, you know, they've, they've had advantages and... They also have undergone the stress that some uh, low economic families would have gone. You know, there's some families that you know they're struggling to pay their bills, and that stress is that cortisol and all the other stress hormones are going to have a big effect on overall health of that child. So, what we're going to talk about today is DNA methylation. What is DNA methylation? It's a, it's a form of uh, epigenetic modification. So, all of our cells contain DNA, and that DNA is made up of a, a sequence of what's called bases, so the, your A's, your G's, your T's, and your C's. And the methylation is a process where a methyl group, so a, a carbon and three hydrogens, is added to a particular site on the DNA on a particular gene called a CPG site or a CPG island. And the, the C and the G are for the, the, the bases. So you get clusters of these CPG sites. So what basically will happen is you either you inherit your gene from your parents, but you might have then differentiation in expression of that gene depending on the methylation status of it. So back to our study then, we found that um, people with a lower socioeconomic status uh, generally had more DNA methylation, which means that more of their genes were repressed normally. Methylation is normally associated with DNA uh, repression. That means that sometimes you're less likely to get those genes being activated if you're from a poorer background. And DNA methylation, interestingly, may provide a mechanism for, for learning and memory. So translating the experiences that we've had with respect to our socioeconomic environment, and that may translate into problems with health. Some people might say, doesn't that sound a bit like Namarchism, James? And I'd say, well, not really. If you've studied particularly GCSE biology, I think I was taught this at GCSE biology, when you were taught about evolution, you'd have been taught two theories, one, one from a man called Charles Darwin and one from a guy called Lamarck, who was French. Lamarck said that if you have a giraffe 
and that giraffe's got to stretch its neck to, to reach some food, then that stretching would be passed on to its offspring. Now that does sound a little bit like uh, epigenetics. So if the parent has undergone a, a change in their life, that would be passed on to the child. Now, the reason I say that it's not really uh, Lamarckism is that epigenetics is when the activity of a gene is altered in response to an environmental factor. It's kind of like the interface between the environment and the genes. So you could have something like exercise or chemical exposure would uh, affect that. So the sequence of letters in the DNA doesn't actually change, but the expression does change. So epigenetics is important on evolution, but it doesn't drive long-term species change because usually those uh, epigenetic changes only last for maybe two or three generations. So if you say it does sound like Lamarckism, um, you're not wrong, but you are wrong. So what have you been up to? To be honest, not a lot since last week. So I'm back at uni at the moment. I'm, I've been studying uh, a module on psychiatric disease, which has been very interesting. Um, so just finishing up the talk component of my degree, ready to move on to the, the research project, which I discussed in, in episode one. More, more from that to follow, I think. So, uh, yeah, what have you been up to then, Charlie? I said in episode one that I just ran a marathon. Uh, last week, I gave a talk to my old primary school, a couple of classes in my old primary school, about the effects of marathon running, uh, how I trained for it, uh, what I ate during during the, ma- the race and before, and what I enjoyed most about the race. Very good. I also found out a couple of weeks ago that I had entered a race in October that was in may and i'd just forgotten about it so <laughs> last weekend i had a 50 mile cycle ride around dartmoor which i didn't really re- prepare for but just about made it round it was a lot hillier than i expected and very cold but you know had to be done still worth it though so denver has legalized the consumption of psychedelic mushrooms it is the first place in the u.s to do this i should stress it is for consumption and not for selling or ownership but uh, Colorado, which is where Denver is, was actually one of the first states that legalized cannabis. It was a few years ago now. So there's a good chance that it will become legal in other states. Also, it may eventually be sold legally as well. This is important. I think in the last podcast, I spoke about the effects of uh, psychedelic mushrooms for relieving stress, depression, and anxiety in cancer patients. Suffering with cancer is obviously a massive, massive uh, mental hurdle as, as, as well as a physical hurdle. It is estimated that more than 30% of cancer patients meet the criteria for mood disorders. The threat isn't over after eliminating the disease. Suicide rates among cancer survivors are also quite high. Uh, obviously, the whole experience is very traumatic, not just for the person involved, but also their families and friends. It can take them out of work for a long time, which can mean getting back to work is difficult. It can sometimes affect their social life. Psychedelic mushrooms, or magic mushrooms as they're often known as, contain a chemical called psilocybin. Uh, That is the chemical that has the neuroactive effects. The difference between banning it and keeping it legal, there's a lot of different reasons for and against. But if it did ever get to the point where it could be sold, that would create a lot of tax for the local authorities, which could also then mean that they can invest that money into awareness campaigns about the drug. So rather than it just being banned completely, people would actually know about it and then could make an active decision whether they wanted to consume it or not. So the drug works by decreasing brain activity, particularly in the on the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. The medial prefrontal cortex is associated with obsessive thinking and in people with depression, 
is usually overactive. This would explain why the symptoms improve and depression and anxiety seems to decrease. So you may have seen in the news recently, it was a big study in America that uh, that some disembodied pig brains were brought back to life, at least on a cellular level. So I'm just going to address some of the questions which a lot of people have about that particular study. These brains were, were killed, disembodied, and brought back roughly four hours after after death to a point where cellular processes were occurring using a drug. So that was at Yale University in the US. So although the team stopped short of restoring consciousness, bioethicists say that its approach has profound ethical implications. A few questions that people have had about it are, could this study lead to immortality? So I would probably say that that is unlikely. The BrainX system, which was developed at Yale, uh, supplied the cells with both oxygen and nutrients, which are required for uh, respiration. And some cellular functions were restored, but the system can't slow aging or disease so that it doesn't cure that problem. So you could still develop things like dementia, Parkinson's, all the neurode uh, neurodegenerative diseases would still occur. And also this hasn't been tried in humans. So, well, purely for ethical reasons, that would be bad because you'd have to remove the, the brain from the skull. But potentially we could revive people after brain death from complications not to do with the brain. So things like if you're in a road traffic accident or if you suffer a heart attack or a stroke, you may be able to be brought back to life in the future. So some people may have asked, could a, a disembodied brain be conscious? And could it perceive or sense things when it's been brought back to life? Now, we don't know about that. So these researchers, for good reasons, decided to cl stay clear of, of bringing the brain back to full consciousness or even trying to. We don't know if it would work or not. They used chemicals to block neurons from firing so that these pigs wouldn't be actually be able to, to think. The, so the cells were alive, but they were unable to communicate with each other. So the, the, the synapses were inhibited, the connections between the neurons. And the team didn't observe any brain-wide activity, which would indicate that organs could be conscious. But the disembodied brain may, may be able to regain consciousness. Uh, it's, not, it's not impossible, but uh, that's because the researchers actually removed uh, brain tissue and applied electrical stimulus. Those of you who uh, are interested in neuroscience, that technique is called electrophysiology, where you pass a current through and measure what the neuron does electrically. And they found that neurons taken away from the brain in vitro, so in uh, not in situ in the in a test tube or a petri dish, they still had the capacity to fire in response to the external prompt. And last year, researchers in the University of California, San Diego, reported that mini brains that could be grown in a dish, so in little little brain cell cultures, were able to emit brain waves. So that's quite interesting. And where does this leave us with cryonics or cryogenics? A few famous people and rich people have been frozen in the hope that their disease could be cured after being frozen for a long time. And they wake up in the future and they're, they're, they're immortal, essentially. Does this study have a possibility of cryonics? Uh, so we don't actually know whether this has any implications for cryonics. The freezing of the body or brain after death may or may not work. We could restore potentially the cellular functions, but no one's tested whether this system would work on brains that have been frozen. We don't know the implications on freezing a brain. So our, uh, our final item of today's show is uh, how grunting influences perception in tennis. If you ever watch tennis, you will have heard the players, both male and female, making grunting noises when they hit the ball. This study says that the, the grunting in tennis influences the prediction for, by the other player of where the ball's going to go, basically. So these grunting noises can sometimes exceed over 100 decibels, which to put that into perspective, that's roughly the same as a, a motorbike or a chainsaw. And fans of, often find this uh, quite impressive. A source of intense debate 
with uh, Serena Williams saying that she's not bothered by it. Because she does it, as does Sharapova, who's also quite bad for it, and Djokovic, and sometimes Nadal. But Martina Navratilova has complained that grunting masks the sound of the racket striking the ball, making it unfairly harder to predict the ball's trajectory. So is this complaint justified? This study by psychologists, not biologists, at uh, the Friedrich Schiller University examines this. As you were saying, it can mask the sound of the racket hitting the ball, which some players have said that affects their timing of when they're going to react to shots and where they expect the ball to be. It was quite often, I think back in the day, it was coaches would actually encourage the players to, to use grunting or war criers some people call it, because it, it it gives off like a psychological strength, I guess. It makes you seem bigger than you are and uh, stronger than you are. So it was actually encouraged. And then in recent years, there's been more of a debate over it. A lot of people find it unsavory. A lot of people find it un- distracting or unnecessary. Uh, Roger Federer, who is largely considered one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time, has never really been seen to do it. So a lot of people argue that you don't need to do it. So this study found that grunting does have an effect, but not the one claimed by Navratilova. So there was no evidence that grunting caused any form of distraction. In spite of the supposed irritation, participants' level of error in predicting where the ball would land was the same, so regardless of the intensity of the grunts. So it's actually shown that the louder the grunting, the further the participants assume the ball would fly. So they think the louder you grunt, the further the ball would go. So I guess what you could do if you're a tennis player do a tiny grunt and then hit the ball really far or the opposite so do a big grunt and then barely hit the ball it might throw off your opponent also i think what you're saying about distraction is that it's going to affect different people differently so some people might not find it distracting some people might find it very distracting so often the uh, often response to cues such as a grunt would be uh based on previous experience so you've got input from the hippocampus and the amygdala with your your memory and your your anxiety and your fear and your emotional response all being input and and calculated into what you think is going to happen so that's going to be different depending on an individual's background what they've been exposed to in the past when perhaps when playing tennis so there's currently no rule against grunting however an umpire can award a point to the other other player if they feel that it has distracted them and they've lost a point but yeah there's a lot of uh controversy around it some people don't mind it some people do and you can if someone repeatedly does it you can take away more than one just one point you can keep taking away points which could obviously massively affect the game i think a standardized procedure is is needed for this really yeah a certain level of decibels maybe but i think it's certainly one for further investigation so i think that brings us to the end once again um so we will see you next time it's been a pleasure we'll see you next time on the basic biology podcast goodbye Goodbye.